Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. I'm Scott, and uh, man, some beautiful passages this morning. If I've never met you, I'm the pastor at Christ Church. And I want to begin this morning in order to fully enter into and understand these beautiful stories in the Bible. I want to begin by accessing our senses and our imagination, and I want to call to your mind's eye a sensory experience, and that is the experience of hot tears, heaving, messy, cathartic, snotty tears. Um, I discovered this week, it's a scientific fact that the longer you cry, the warmer your tears get. Wow, how about that for some science? So I'm not talking about the little emoji with the one tear. I'm talking about the emoji with the gushing tears, you know, that you send when you see a picture of a baby or something to somebody who just texts you. You guys all know what I'm talking about. This is when something that has been in you for a long time is finally released, and whether it's grief or joy, it comes out in this catharsis uh, of tears. Some of us are really hard criers, and some of you are like, I do that every single week. And some of you rarely, if ever, cry, But whether it's you or whether it's someone else, you can probably think of a time where you experienced that. So let me give you one experience for me. When I was in college, I was a Young Life leader. Um, So I I hung out with a bunch of sweaty uh, high school kids. And I spent four years with a group of teenage guys. And they were uh, like caveman, football-playing, crazy teenage dudes. And... uh, it was hard in a small group to get them to share a single feeling, you know what I mean? It was, it was tough going with these guys for four years, but after their last football game, I was at their last football game as seniors, after that final huddle, I have never seen people cry that hard in my life. I mean, they were like heaving all in a huge huddle together, all crying, just overwhelmingly ex- insane hot tears. And I think part of it was grief that it was over, but it was also just this moment of communal catharsis. They had spent so much time doing this. They loved it so much. I don't know why football players cry when their season's over, but if you're a football player, you know what I'm talking about, okay? So think of a time like that for you. Feel in your imagination how that felt if you were the one doing the crying, right? Think of how if somebody was crying on you, they got snot all over your T-shirt or your shirt. Or if you did that on somebody else, you didn't even notice you got snot on them because you were crying so hard, okay? Got it? Everybody get one in your imagination. I want you to have that accessible in your imagination because that is how the great narratives of the book of Genesis climax. The epic generational sagas of the patriarchs And one of the most influential books in the world, the book of Genesis, ends with an epic cry fest. We've been studying Genesis uh, for the past summer, actually the past two summers, and our goal has been to not study every tree in the forest. We haven't, you know, gone line by line through the whole book, but our goal has been to get a feel for the forest itself, to see what Genesis is doing and how it reveals to us the gospel. And when you study the book of Genesis and you follow the narrative paths, In the book of Genesis, all the roads lead to hot tears. Hear me out if you're like, what in the world are you talking about? All right, the book of Genesis has 50 chapters, and those chapters are divided into 10 parts. 
And if you want to nerd out with me sometime, I can explain how these 10 like acts of the book of Genesis work. But each part of Genesis, which uh, is delineated with the title of these are the generations of, focuses on a particular branch of this patriarchal family tree in the book of Genesis. So for example, you start with the generations of Adam and it's about his kids. The generations of Noah is about Noah's kids. The generations of Jacob and so on and so forth. Well, the entire last half of the book of Genesis, chapters 20 to 25 to 50, so half of the book, focuses on mainly two generations. The first is the story of Isaac's kids, which is Jacob and Esau that we've been studying. So it's kind of their epic generational saga. And the second is the story of Jacob's kids, which is the 12 tribes of Israel. It is Joseph and his technicolor dream coat. These are the two family stories that get the most airtime in the book of Genesis. They are deeply patterned, they are deeply detailed, and they both share the fact that the climax of the entire narrative ends with people heaving and weeping upon each other. So let's think about the saga of Jacob and Esau for a second. There is serious, serious dysfunction in this family generation, okay? When we're talking about parts of the family tree, this was a bad one, all right? This mom and dad has twins, and even at the birth of these twins, there's kind of a rift between mom and dad, and there's also rivalry happening between the twins at birth. (laughs) And we've studied how this pans out. Jacob steals Esau's blessing. He swindles him out of his birthright. Jacob makes his father look like a fool in the process, and it gets so bad that this son, Jacob, has to flee his house because he's afraid he's going to get killed. That is extreme dysfunction, okay? Uh, These are the kinds of sins that bear lifetime grudges. In every family I know, there's at least one person somewhere in the family tree that doesn't talk to another person in the family. You know, like Aunt Barb in the 70s got mad at so-and-so and they haven't talked since. Most of the reasons I've heard of people not talking to each other are not as bad as what happens between Jacob and Esau. This is really bad stuff. But as we saw last week, while Jacob is off in a far country, he has this transformation. He grows up, he has a family, and on his way home, he wrestles God, and after that, he becomes this humble, changed man. He feels conviction for what he did wrong. And what immediately follows, the episode of his wrestling with God. So what Susan just read literally is the next verse after the the verse we studied last week with his wrestling with God, is the climactic moment of Jacob and Esau's story. And that is when Jacob comes back and finally sees Esau, the brother he cheated. And think about it. Jacob has not seen his brother since he dressed up like him and stole his blessing. It has been radio silence. There weren't even radios in Bible times, okay? There wasn't even a post office. They have not connected since that happened. So when he sees Esau coming towards him with 400 men, it's a lot of dudes, he's terrified, and rightly so. He assumes it's going to go bad, and he starts preparing for the worst. I'm going to give him all these gifts. I'm going to bow seven times. I'm going to do all this act to try to pacify his wrath, and Jacob is expecting, he's bracing himself for judgment from Esau. 
Look at verse 1 with me, verse 33 in your, in your Bible. If, you, if you're at home, grab a Bible, turn to, to chapter 33 in Genesis. But we're looking at chapter 33, verse 1. You guys there? All right, very next verse after he wrestles with God. Think of all the drama. Try to put this in the context of what you know about the story of Jacob. And Jacob lifted his eyes, limping out of the darkness where he just wrestled with God and got a blessing. And behold, which in Hebrew is like, ha, ah, look, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel. He's frenetic. And the two female servants, and he puts the servants with their children in front. Then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. And he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. The entire drama of Jacob and Esau is being stretched to its limit here. Uh, if I was the director of a movie, I would put those strings in that are just climbing like, you know what I'm talking about that they do in movies? That's happening at this moment. But then look at verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Insert gushing tear emoji here. The tension of this entire long, drawn-out drama resolves into heaving hot tears in an embrace with brothers who had been violently estranged from each other, reconciled, weeping upon one another. Isn't that beautiful? This is truly cinematic. It's also shocking, and it's scandalous in a way. It doesn't make sense. Why does Esau not kill Jacob? Why doesn't he just draw a sword and just run him through right there at that point? What's the reason for, Jake, for Esau's warmth and acceptance? We don't ever fully learn the answer to that question, but we do know, and what Jacob points out, is that this is a glimpse of divine love and forgiveness. Jacob says, I have seen your face later on in this story, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me, is what Jacob says. And Jacob knows what he's talking about because who did he just, whose face did he see the previous night? God's, right? He says, I've seen the face of God and lived. Uses that exact language in the previous story. So Jacob realizes there's a connection here between what just happened with him with God and then something that's happening to him with Esau and his acceptance. So there's something about this weepy, snotty, tear-filled moment with Jacob and Esau that has some revelation in it. We're meant to see God in this story, according to Jacob. But then to just show you how cool Genesis is, and how I'm really not blowing smoke with all the tear stuff, after a few more chapters, the, the saga of Jacob and Esau concludes, even though that's really the climax. And then we get to a new generational saga, which is the story of Jacob's kids. He has 12 of them, and it's about Joseph and his brothers. And guess what happens in that generation? After all this dysfunction in these generations in Genesis, there finally is a group of siblings who just learn to love one another in peace, and they just take care of each other, and they pursue God, and they do everything right. No! 
It's way worse between Joseph and his brothers, I think, than it was between Jacob and Esau. And there's another sermon here about how every single generation is messed up and every single generation needs its own creation, fall, and redemption in the gospel. I'm not going to preach it right now, but wow, that's encouraging. There's jealousy, there's division, there's rivalry, there's immorality, there's violence, so much so that the brothers, as you know, leave their younger brother for dead, and then after that, they change their mind and sell him into slavery, okay? This is extreme dysfunction. If Esau had a reason to bear a grudge against Jacob, I think Joseph has a larger reason still to bear a grudge against his brothers. This family is shredded apart. Think of the trauma that Joseph has. Uh, It's clear from Genesis that the rest of the brothers just have this albatross hung around their neck for the rest of their life for what they did to their brother. And the dad, Jacob, seems to succumb to depression and grief over the loss of his son. So this is a family that is shredded apart, but then guess where the story goes? Joseph has this amazing journey in Egypt, and we're going to look into the story of Joseph next week on our retreat. But the drama centers really, in the end, not around Joseph's place in Egypt, but around his relationship with his brothers is what it's all about. And it comes to the day when all his brothers come to Egypt that the Joseph story in all of Genesis climaxes in a massive catharsis of weeping upon one another. If you've read the book, you know what I'm talking about. There are full chapters at the end of Genesis where the drama is Joseph trying to suppress his tears. Literally, he's like in the presence of his brother and he has to leave. At one point, he runs out from his brother so he can go have a really good cry. He's in a room by himself and he weeps so hard, it says that Pharaoh heard. So it's like that picture in a movie where it backs up in a city and you just hear wailing and everybody in Egypt's like, who in the world is crying that hard? That's literally in Genesis. Until the day he finally decides he can't hold it any longer and he has to tell his brothers who he is. And he tells them who he is, I'm your brother. And then, same language as Jacob and Esau, he falls on their neck and he weeps upon them. And they fall on his neck and weep upon him. And then he goes home and he meets his dad and he falls upon Jacob's neck and he weeps on his dad. Everybody weeps. Like Jacob and Esau, it's a picture of brothers who were estranged by sin coming back together and finding reconciliation. It's deeply moving. It's beautiful. It's also just as shocking. Why does Joseph not execute all of his brothers, especially Reuben and Simeon? Genesis could end with Joseph saying, you intended this for evil to me. God has vindicated me into a place of power and now you're all gonna go up against the wall. But it doesn't end like that, does it? Genesis, one of the most ancient, influential texts in world history, ends with a catharsis of tears and reconciliation. Wow. With the family getting back together again. Do you see how there's a pattern to the story of Joseph and the story of Jacob. A brother is estranged through sin and is forced into a far country than the one that he grew up in, where the estranged member undergoes this type of sanctification and transformation, and the climax is the reconciliation 
of the family and a weeping upon each other and a falling upon each other's neck. Narrative patterns are really important in the Bible. When you see a pattern, you should be like, oh wow, that's a pattern. And this seems to be a really important one in Genesis, and this pattern especially seemed to be important to the greatest reader and interpreter of Genesis of all time, who was Jesus of Nazareth. The prodigal son is a story which seems to be almost, if it's drawn from any story in the Old Testament, it's mainly drawn from the story of Jacob and Esau. There's a younger brother who is estranged through sin into a far country, and it's there when he finally gets in a corner, when the money and the booze run out, that there's this conviction that happens. There's a transformation that takes place in the prodigal son. And so he limps home afraid and ashamed like Jacob, bracing himself for the worst. He's practicing his speech. This is what I'm done. It's going to be bad, but at least I don't have to eat what the pigs eat. But then he's shocked. The father sees him, same verbs as Esau, runs toward him, has compassion on him, falls on his neck, and even though it doesn't say it explicitly in Luke 15, we can infer there's some tears. Try looking at any of the Rembrandt paintings of this moment or drawings of this moment and tell me that they're not crying somehow. There's all kinds of snot and catharsis involved in this, okay? Never said snot so many times in a sermon. Um, the, the counselors in our midst will tell you an important part of maturing as men and women and becoming healthy people is learning to listen to our emotions. That's an important thing. We learn to not repress everything we feel. We learn to listen to what we're feeling. Wow, I'm feeling this way right now. That's important. And then we learn to attend to those feelings. We learn to pray through those feelings. What's behind this? Where's this coming from? And as we come to understand those things, it helps us to grow and to heal and to become integrated people. And I actually think attending to emotion is just as important when it comes to biblical interpretation. Because the Bible isn't a textbook, it's a story. And so when there are big emotions in a Bible story like this, it's important for us to ask, man, what's behind this? So in my sermon prep this week, there's so much here, but I just couldn't get away. The, the Holy Spirit just kept on leading me to these tears. Why are these people crying? You know how you ask people that when they're crying? Why are you crying? To me, I, I want to ask Jacob and Esau and all these people, why so many tears in this reconciliation moment? What's behind this? So I want to dig a little deeper and understand what's behind Jacob and Esau's tears. Does this sound good? What's behind Esau's tears? Here's my best shot at it. I think his tears, Esau's, represent the joy and consolation of one who has longed for years for someone to come home and then they finally do. The emotion we are dealing with here is a deeply lodged ache that laments the estrangement of someone they love and who yearns for them to come home. This is not a longing that comes and goes. This is one that is lived with, right? This is one that leads a person to wake up and feel the pain of that estrangement and to long, when am I gonna see this person? 
I wonder if I'll talk to him this week. How would that ever happen? Um, We don't get Esau's journey, like I've already said, so it's kind of a mystery, but we do know that he wanted to kill his brother 14 years ago. But somewhere along the way, his wrath must have cooled, and he started thinking about, for all his brother's Loki-like antics, he loved him. He was his brother, his twin. And if you have a twin, you know that that bond is especially powerful. So at some point, Esau's love for Jacob must have taken over and just started to grow and grow inside of him where he just started thinking, man, I just miss, I'm ready to forgive Jacob. I just miss him. I just want him to come home. And so when he hears Jacob is on his way, think about the emotional process for for Esau here. When he finally hears, hey, Jacob and his family are coming back, he starts running. Isn't that amazing? He sees his brother, he sees him doing the whole seven bow thing to try to appease his wrath and he just kind of blows by it and falls on his brother and weeps. And the years of him longing to be reconnected to his brother finally are released and he cries on his brother's shoulder, his twin shoulder. That's where those tears are coming from. The same must have happened for Joseph with all of his brothers. All his time in Egypt, he must have been longing at some point to switch, to just want to be back with his brothers, to see him again, have that opportunity to forgive him. And brothers and sisters, this is true of our heavenly father. Remember what Jacob says when he sees Esau's face and experiences this forgiveness? He says, I just saw the face of God. So we've got to make the connection that Genesis and Jacob are asking us to make here which is that according to Jesus, the father feels the same longings and yearnings for us as Esau felt about Jacob. All of us have sinned. All of us are prodigal sons and cheating Jacobs. We have all run away, and yet the father loves us. He is affected by our estrangement. What a wild thing to meditate upon. Our separation moves him, and he wants us to come home. He longs for us to come home. And like Esau, the father stands at the gate. The father's posture is eager anticipation of the homecoming of his children. And when he sees the prodigal, just like Esau does, the father starts running moving towards us, and he falls upon him and kisses him and blesses him. I was thinking this week, Jacob was away for 14 years, and in his wildest imagination, he couldn't have ever dreamed that Esau would have received him like this. In his wildest dreams, there's no way he thought this is what's going to happen. And most of us are the same way when it comes to our Heavenly Father. One of the hardest things for us to get around is the idea that God actually does want us. Every single one of us has a speech. Well, I mean, I know I'm not like, you know, gonna make it into heaven or I know I'm not gonna be perfectly received, but I know Jesus is cross and everything, so like maybe God will accept me even though I'm miserable. Everybody has a speech that you work on. Who could imagine that the Father would love us the way that Jesus says in the prodigal son. 
and yet it's true. The main point, if you read the whole chapter of Luke 15 where Jesus tells this story, he tells three different stories, and the main point of all three stories is to get you to believe that the number one thing that God and all heaven get most excited about is when a sinner repents. That's the, that's the thing they, they go bonkers for, and is when somebody comes home. For many of us this morning, this might be the first step. This might need to be what you need to hear this morning, is that you're wanted at home. You're wanted at home. Your heavenly Father wants you to come back. Esau's tears teach us about the heart of God. Behold them. Meditate upon them. Amen? What about Jacob's tears? Genesis says they wept. It doesn't just say Esau wept. They both cry. So what's behind Jacob's tears? Jacob's tears represent the unexpected shock of being fully accepted and forgiven. They are the tears of a man who did not get what he knew he deserved and instead received otherworldly, incomprehensible love. As we've studied Jacob's story, we've, you know, we know this guy was addicted to cheating people all over the place, but it didn't mean he didn't have a conscience. And remember, as you're studying his story, there are these moments where you start to see his conviction you know, so there are points in, in Laban's country where he has, he has to be carrying an ache of remorse. He feels bad for what he did. He, he longs to ask his brother's forgiveness. Conviction and guilt is just as oppressive as anger. All of these emotions are things that stay with you and work inside of you. And he must have carried that around for years, for 14 years, and also, he no doubt thought about what would happen inevitably one day, and that is Judgment Day. He would have known at some point, I'm going to bump into my brother, and he is a wrathful, hairy, carnal man, and he's going to fly off the handle, and it's going to go south. And he fears for him, he fears for his family, he fears for his children. We saw that last week, remember, in his prayer to God. And so as he sees Esau coming to him with 400 men, think of all the fear and all the remorse and all those emotions inside him that are simmering to a boil as he's approaching the moment that he's been waiting for for the last 14 years. But then he just doesn't get what he thinks he's gonna get. Esau falls on his neck, not with a sword, but with compassion. He feels the hot tears of Esau on his shoulder genuine love and acceptance, and then he just has this utter release of reconciliation and love back for his brother, his twin. He realizes he was wanted at home. His deepest fears did not come true. Hallelujah. His deepest fears did not come true. What did come true was beyond his wildest imagination. On a larger scale, I think this is what's happening with Joseph and his brothers at the very end. I mean, they are shocked, not just by the fact that, oh my gosh, Joseph is like in charge of Egypt, but also we did not all just get executed. And he had that power absolutely to do that. And this is the shock of the prodigal son. He experiences conviction out in a far country. He's eating with pigs. He comes home in fear, though, mainly just out of desperation. 
he, like Jacob, is ready to do and say what needs to be done. You know, he's working through his speech, but he's bracing for what he knows he deserves. And he is shocked, stunned, maybe even a little scandalized, I think, when his father does not punish him or shame him, but rather clothes him and falls on his neck and celebrates him. The shock of the gospel is not getting what you thought you were going to get. The, the shock of the gospel is being embraced instead of shamed. And when that happens, all those fears, all that shame, all that conviction is finally released in the embrace of the Father. And you have hot tears on your shoulder, and you weep hot, hot tears on his. So these are the hot tears of the gospel. This is an essential part of everything the Bible teaches is this moment. It is not for nothing that the great stories in Genesis end this way. They are trying to teach us something. It's not for nothing that, again, I've heard somebody call Jesus the master storyteller and the prodigal son is his master story. That it ends with that moment. This is what God looks like. I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you've accepted me. Yes, it's beautiful. It's also scandalous because this grace doesn't make sense to us, certainly not to our world. This is incomprehensible. But the gospel reveals why this grace and acceptance is possible, and that's because Christ, our older brother, picked up our debt. He's covered everything. Barabbas is allowed to go free because Christ took his place. So we have boldness to come home and not fear judgment, but only the embrace of the Father. This is for you. This week, I've thought about this a lot my whole life. I've heard the prodigal son. I've, I've kind of blown over the story of Jacob and Esau, but I needed to hear this this week. And I think you do too. I think we all need to be reminded of this God wants you to come home. He loves you. He's affected by your estrangement. And he's done everything he needed to do on the cross in order for you to be able to come home. We taste this at our first conversion, at what Amazing Grace would say, the hour you first believe. I certainly have cried these tears. I have experienced this. I've tasted it. I've had the immense privilege of having people cry on me these tears. Not because I was accepting them, but because they were realizing that they truly were accepted at home. That they didn't get what they thought they deserved. That their, their wildest fears were not coming true. Maybe you have that experience. Maybe you've had the privilege of being with somebody who's having that experience. But as a community coming home, this is kind of like our vision as a church. Our vision is to be a house where people come and experience this and experience the embrace of the Father, the hot, snotty tears of the gospel. That's not in our vision statement, but maybe it should be. <laughs> I, man, I want to see this more in Madison. Every single week I drive to church and I pass all these people and I just want them to experience this too. Don't you? 
that is why we're doing what we're doing. And God is doing that. And yet this isn't something you only taste the hour you first believe. This is something we continually taste. We are all a community coming home. This is a progressive thing. So even if you have learned once in your life, or there was a time when the gospel and the grace of God hit you, I'm really loved, I'm really accepted. This is something that we grow into our entire life. We journey deeper and deeper into the embrace of the Father. And that is also why we're doing what we're doing. We are a place where people are coming home, but then we're all on a homeward coming home journey in this house. And just to speak and to spur your Christian hope for a second, the church, even though it it is the household of God, it is not the permanent house. The church is the tabernacle on the way to the temple. And the temple is the house of the Father. So think about it. When Jesus left his disciples and he said, I'm going away because I have a job to do. I'm gonna leave my spirit with you in order to do the work that you're gonna finish my work on earth, but I have a job to do in heaven. And what is the the Lord doing in heaven? He is preparing a place for us, where? At his Father's house. So even as we are experiencing this and tasting it, the whole story of the Bible, the whole story of our lives and the life of the world and the gospel is heading towards this moment of an embrace in the Father's house, a final and full eschatological embrace and catharsis with the Father. That's where we are heading. And I think the end of all things, this has captured my imagination this week, will be nothing that anybody, any of us could have planned on or imagined in our wildest dreams what it will be like to fully experience with no veil in front of us the embrace of the Father. So for the rest of our service, we're gonna sing some amazing songs as we've already been singing uh, about arising and going to Jesus, being embraced in his arms. And we're just gonna lean into this as a church. We're gonna come and be accepted at his table. And I wanna encourage you to receive prayer if you wanna pray into, into any of this. But this is Christianity 101. This is what we are about as a church. Amen? I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.